This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan. This is episode 11, Canute, Not Quite the Great. episode, the great Edmund Ironside met his very untimely death. And today, we're going to see how Canute establishes himself as not the king of Danish England, but as the Danish Anglophile king of English England. See, these kingdoms aren't just different. The political, cultural, and economic gap between them spans, well, a good way to remember how different they were is the mileage between England and Denmark and the mileage between England and Normandy. Because remember, especially with Ethelred's marriage to Emma, England in all of these areas had a southern orientation. England looked southward politically, culturally, and economically. Normandy's, what, 20 or so miles away? While Denmark, by boat across the North Sea, is around 500 miles or so. Canute has his work cut out for him, no doubt about that. But how will he effectively control and ultimately earn the loyalty of the very people he and his father had just terrorized in the preceding years? Today, we're going to see Canute impress historians for centuries in some pretty masterful moves as he slowly but surely becomes the king that the English had been praying for since the days of Edgar almost 50 years before. I hope you enjoy the show. The south of England, his ancient ancestral lands of Wessex, it was where his grandfather, many times removed, Alfred, had unified most of the island. And it was where Edmund now looked up at the night sky, a slight chill in the breeze as it whipped through his hair. Though the air was brisk and wet, his melancholy wasn't due to the change of seasons. Edmund felt a tightness in his belly. His chest had a pressure in it, like a balloon was pushing his ribs outward in all directions with every breath. He had trouble sleeping as well, hence the nightly stroll around the courtyard. His wounds from Ashenden were still healing. One was taking exceptionally longer than the others, but Edmund didn't pay much attention to it. He was familiar with the glances and punctures from iron blades as he was of stories of his legendary Saxon ancestors. In fact, he found comfort in both these stories as well as from his wounds. One, a reminder of where he came from. The other, a reminder that he's still here carrying on the proud name of Alfred. Yet he hurt for his line. He hurt for his people. See, after Ascendon, he met his formidable Danish opponent, another claimant to his throne, the throne of England itself, named Knut, son of the tyrant king Swain Forkbeard, and was forced to cede not only his lands, but also his countrymen north of the Thames, including the brave souls in London who held the Danes off 
time and again just months before. The usurper was genial enough, Edmund had to admit that. He was young, brash, Danish, but he was smart and a good strategist. Edmund was most impressed, though, by a silent but striking figure who held to the background for the duration of the meeting. This man's bearded face was of stone, neither a smile nor a scowl, but he was dangerous, Edmund could surmise. This face was familiar to him, too, but it didn't occur to him when or where he could have seen it. Edmund recalled that halfway through the discussions that hit him like a punch in the gut, this man had fought for his father. This man had defected after the senseless death of St. Alphea back almost a decade before. This man had a dangerous way about him, but also a strong sense of control over himself as as well as those around him. He seemed to know he was not at the center of the proceedings, but that he was certainly a part of them. Edmund remembered the man's name, Thorkel the Tall. And while this young man, Canute, was droning on about his right to the throne of England, Edmund laughed inwardly, eyes glancing toward this man named Thorkel, because he knew that Canute must have known this man would follow the money. Most of these Danish heathens were the same way. For Canute, it was about notoriety as a means of power. But men like Thorkel, they sought power through wealth. Edmund realized he'd pretty much seen it all at this point. His older brother, Ethelstan, he sought power through military excellence. Canute's father, he sought power through sheer force. And Edmund's own father, Ethelred, he sought power through assumption. What would Edmund be like as king, he thought. How would he seek power? He hadn't always been the man he was sitting at a peace table of his worthy opponent. As an upstart back up to the throne, he remembered how he once extorted bishops and pretty much walked around with an air much like his father's, one of assumption of respect. Today, swords sheathed across from his Danish prince, Edmund had commanded the respect of an untold number of English men and women, marching through towns just five months earlier collecting men to fight, boys across England ran alongside his horse, smiling and shouting support for their brave king. These thoughts, those of the sit-down with Canute and the campaigning across much of Mercia, Wessex, and Lindsay, these weighed on him like a pile of coins with his father's face imprinted on them. The weight was that of two hundred years of the House of Wessex, that of Alfred, Ethelstan I, and Edgar. But he held Wessex, and that was a start. If sleep chose not to visit him, he would force him to visit it. He thought to relieve himself first and then pray to never wake up. The burden he bore was becoming too heavy, but with Wessex he reminded himself, England was built, and with Wessex, England shall be built again. He would see to it. Edmund retired that night, but never woke up. That is one such telling of the death of Edmund, which focused on the wound received at Assenden that led to his death on November 30th, 1016 but there is another telling as well. We pick up the story 
as he's strolling once again through his courtyard. These thoughts, those of the sit-down with Canute and the campaigning across much of Mercia, Wessex, and Lindsay, these weighed on him like a pile of coins with his father's face imprinted on them, as Edmund walked around the courtyard, unable to sleep. The weight was that of two hundred years of the House of Wessex, that of Alfred, Athelstan I, and Edgar. But he held Wessex, and that was a start. If sleep chose not to visit him, he would force him to visit it. He thought to relieve himself first, and then pray to never wake up. The burden he bore was becoming too heavy. But with Wessex, he reminded himself, England was built. And with Wessex, England shall be built again. He would see to it. And as he sat, willing himself to finish up quickly and retire to the warmth of his bed, a flash of pain unlike anything he'd ever experienced coursed from his lower gut to his chest. It was more shocking than painful, and before he could react, he felt it again and again and again until his vision narrowed to a tunnel directly in front of him. He felt his feet as wet as if he'd stood under a waterfall, but the water was hot. Edmund never felt his face slam the straw on the dirt floor in front of him. Edmund was dead. Two days later, on December 1st, 1016, Canute received word that the King of Wessex was dead. No one knew how. Not even the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle mentions a cause of death. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle did mention that Edmund Ironside, son of Ethelred II, was buried alongside his grandfather, King Edver Edgar the Peaceful, at Glastonbury, though. What you've just heard were and are the two most popular theories floated around history circles for centuries of how Edmund might have died, though I've taken liberties with my own narration, of course. But one thing is clear. Not a single English source cast suspicion upon his successor, the man who quickly claimed all of the Kingdom of Wessex under his banner and united in England, almost identical to the England we know today. His name, of course, is Canute, and the decisions he makes to reorganize and consolidate his power over the ensuing year or two were just a snippet of why he will one day earn the respect of the English people as well as that of royalty across Europe. But in January of 1017, news of Edmund's death had reached the coasts all around the island, including Scotland, Wales, and then beyond. Canute was king of almost the entire island, an island he and his father had systematically ravaged for nearly 17 years. He was not yet Canute the Great. In fact, by contemporary measures, he might have earned the name Canute the Tyrant upon Edmund's death. However, Canute would soon suppress his opposition, corral his doubters, dispose of his haters, and bend the new Anglo-Danish -Danish kingdom to his will. At first, Canute was hardly a wizened ruler. In fact, all evidence indicates that he most likely couldn't give a rip about what the English people thought of him. He was their king, plain and simple, and they'd be better off accepting that fact. But the question remained, how do you establish your kingship, earned through military might in a nation where an elected monarchy was the custom, being a foreigner among a hostile, defeated people? The first thing Canute did was surround himself with a small circle of advisors, 
He called on his brother-in-law first, Eric Hackenarson, a Norseman and current Earl of Northumbria, having received the earldom after Canute had the former elderman, Uhtred the Bold, assassinated months earlier. Eric had become very familiar with English politics and customs and would be a trusted confidant. Next, he would make a grave error in judgment if he did not include the highly respected Viking leader, Thorkel the Tall, a man who spent years as a petty raider, only to spend equal amounts of time serving his father's court as well as the English crown over the last two decades. And finally, his last advisor was both an obvious choice as well as an intriguing choice. The one and only Edric Strayona. At this point, there was not a single living English nobleman with the influence that Edric welded, and Canute knew, at least at the beginning here, Edric would serve a valuable purpose. So, step one, establish a proto-cabinet of trusted advisors to carry out your plan. Check. Step two, divide, delegate, and conquer. Canute quickly divided his kingdom into four distinct earldoms. Canute would keep Wessex itself, the ancient seat of Alfred, as his own, and make his royal capital at Winchester, Alfred's royal capital. Eric Hakonarsson would remain Earl of Northumbria. Edric Strayona would be given the Earl, Earldom of Mercia. And finally, it's worth noting that, that one area of England still held out a, a fiery fighting spirit. The area has always been to this point known as a, well, a rough place to rule. So who better to quell such ruffians than another ruffian? Thorkel the Tall became Earl of East Anglia. Now, records from East Anglia are next to non-existent around this time, whether purposely or by fate of history, we just don't know. But part of me wonders whether that's for the best. It is quickly realized how effective Thorkel became, as we see Thorkel descend into East Anglia and then re-emerge free enough to maintain his position as a man second only to King Canute. I can only imagine what it took to suppress the rebellious spirit of the proud East Anglians. And honestly, I'm, I'm not sure if I want those details. Now, we don't know for sure whether Canute meant for England to remain broken into four earldoms indefinitely when he implemented it. But by 1018, charters were reflecting names of six earls instead of four. And by the mid-1020s, over ten. So Canute's initial policy might have focused on delegation to his most trusted and effective subordinates, and when that was established, then he planned to head into the next phase and break the English nobility down into further substructures. And then step three might be the biggest one. Convince the English that he is an anglicized Danish king. Now, what does that mean? Well, don't forget, Canute spent an awful lot of his childhood in England. He became, through his adolescence, shockingly because he and his father were orchestrating an island-wide campaign of terror, well, he became an Anglophile. He was enamored with this beautiful backwater place, a place shoved up into the far northwestern reaches of Europe proper. This place was fertile and scenic, and its people were proud and healthy with a work ethic second to none. Being a Christian himself, Canute understood these English Christians and respected their love of documentation and preservation 
of the works of the past in their monasteries. The weather wasn't perfect, but it was mild. And unbeknownst to Canute, modern studies have proven that Europe was experiencing a warm period called the medieval warming period. Historians just stink at naming things. And this allowed, according to the records, widespread vineyards to be established in Wessex and Kent. And due to Viking influence, England also played a role in the European slave trade, pushing the Irish, as well as their own Anglo-Saxon slaves, out in exchange for foreign commodities and luxuries. Norwegians, having pushed as far west as Greenland and the fabled lands beyond, well, they used English ports as a stopping-off point for trade with the larger European economies as well. These economies were impressively plugged in, as Valerie Hansen explains in her new book, The Year 1000, as far south and east as Al-Andalus, Constantinople, Baghdad, and even the Song Dynasty in China. English nobility enjoyed a firm, though not central, role in the medieval marketplace, and therefore all around him in the towns and villages he sacked, a teenage Canute was able to see everything from Rus coins to Muslim fabrics. Sure, England suffered off to the sides of the map, but they also enjoyed a wealthy economy even throughout the Danish horrors of the early 11th century. For Canute, England held an unfathomable amount of promise, which is why, again, he made it a top priority to sell his Englishness to the English. At the end of 1017, on the first anniversary of Edmund's death, Canute held a firm grip on the English people by this time, but he still lacked the loyalty from them. He decided to visit Edmund's grave and pay his respects. And he was accompanied, it's said, by another advisor he brought into his court in the preceding months. None other than Bishop Wolfston. Yes, the same fiery preacher who denounced the lack of English piety from the royal crown down just four years earlier. This show of respect for his former adversary, genuine or not, though I'd like to think it was genuine due to other sources that say the two men had a great amount of respect for one another. See, Canute made a major leap with this move, and the English began to, you know, make the, make the turn around the corner toward loyalty. Another way Canute sold his love for everything England was how he made Winchester, as I said, the new royal seat of all of England. This, of course, goes beyond a nod toward his rival Edmund. Rather, it speaks to a deeper understanding and appreciation of English history, one in which the English held as dear as anything. Winchester was Alfred's seat of power. Canute. <laughs> Man, he's good. And he's not just good for a Viking, either. One could make a case that Canute was far more English than he was Danish or Viking. As I said, he was raised more or less in England. He was familiar with so much already, even though he still held serious bonds of loyalty with Denmark. I mean, don't forget, his brother Harold is currently Denmark's king. But Canute, most likely, always saw himself as English. Canute may have seen himself as very much an Anglican Dane, a man of these beaten and suppressed people he admired so much, but he certainly still held his father's Viking cruelty at times. Don't forget, this is the guy who chopped off the ears, noses, and fingers of thousands of POWs and then dumped them in sandwich before heading home and gathering another fleet to invade England. 
He's still the same guy, but he's he's that guy with a more controlled sense of leadership by this time. He was no longer the, the petulant, impulsive child that committed such atrocities. No, his atrocities now? <laughs> well, they were calculated. In 1017, the same year he divided England into four earldoms and began dismantling the English nobility, Ethelred's last surviving son from his first marriage was still around. If you remember, I mentioned him in the last episode as, as more of an afterthought, because, I mean, honestly, he was. But Canute still saw this man as a potential threat. At first, Canute focused on more pressing matters, but word began circulating of Edwig's slow rise among the lowest of English society. In fact, the title given to Edwig was King of the Churls. That is to say, King of the Freemen. Now, if you're king of the freemen, that must mean that Canute was the king of slaves. And no one wants to be known as a slave. You can see how this ruffled Canute's feathers quite a bit. And when he heard about this, he no doubt acted swiftly. He had outmaneuvered Ethelred. He'd fell on good fortune at the sudden death of the great Ethelstan Etheling. And he defeated the gargantuan presence of Edmund Ironside. There's simply no way that he would allow this, this twerp to rise any higher. Canute outlawed Edwig, which meant in medieval England that you could be killed if you're an outlaw, you could be killed and your killer would face no legal repercussions. In fact, your killer might just be rewarded. But the backlash was too severe. In fact, the person that was hired to do the job of killing Edwig backed out at the last second, out of respect for the line of Alfred. So, Canute, as he's wont to do, he changed course. Canute invited Edwig back into the mainstream English life, and all seemed to be well again. Until Edwig ended up dead. No one knows how, but come on. I mean, the man sent to kill Edwig couldn't. So, wouldn't you just find someone who could? Maybe a Viking? It wasn't a good look, but either way, Canute was now the sole ruler of England. There was to be no possible threat from an established royal line. The people could be upset about Edwig as much as they wanted, and it wouldn't change a thing at this point. And speaking of finding a Viking who would be happy to take the job for the right price, Canute had one more giant obstacle ahead of him in 1017. I mean, if powder kegs existed at this point, Canute was sitting right on top of a pile of them, holding a lit match. And that match was getting closer and closer to his fingers. Canute sat atop the throne of England. But he wouldn't be there without the Vikings who fought for him, including the likes of Thorkell the Tall, who commanded an unknowingly large amount of respect. Vikings, though still loyal to an extent to their royal house of their homelands, were mercenaries at the end of the day, and as Canute handed out new assignments and positions and roles to his most loyal and trusted warriors, there were still thousands occupying his new kingdom. I mean, he's got to do something about this. And they were getting antsy. They wanted their paychecks. Canute was forced to jack up the tax rate to a point of financial suffocation of the entire English economy. I mean, after just months, that once wealthy and prosperous English marketplace, even in the midst of warfare, 
found itself choking beneath the cruel hands of its usurper king. And London, the most important growing port town on the, on the Thames, the town that repelled countless onslaughts from Canute himself just a year earlier, well, they took it not only on the chin, but on the gut, the cheek, the throat, and everywhere else. I mean, it was bad. Canute doubled the tax rates on Londoners. It was brutal. England suffered terribly throughout 1017, but Canute made a ruthless decision that might have saved his kingship. Had he not swiftly raised the funds, he would have ended up no different than Ethelred, because he would have had a massive and violently vengeful Viking horde throughout his kingdom, and they would surely turn on him had his debt not been paid. Thankfully for Canute, his oppressive tax rates sent the Viking mercenaries packing soon though Canute was sure to keep roughly 40 boatloads of Vikings in England as a, as a sort of proto-standing army. Soon, the tax rates were eased, and the English began to see the necessity of, of his decisions. When we look beyond 1017, Canute only grew in popularity. He established himself as a fair ruler in most areas, though he was never too far from the ruthless calls his Viking blood afforded him. In fact, one such call came to an old friend of our story. Canute sent word, probably in late November or early December of 1017, to his Earl in Mercia, that he would be positioning a trusted Dane to oversee the lands and its people, but that this Earl could safely sit back, keep all his lands and possessions invested to him at that point, and relax in a well-earned retirement of sorts. Well, as we've seen, a man like Edric Strayona, the earl in question here, was most likely not okay with a retirement. In his scheming head, he most likely had much grander visions of prominence and power under Canute than being a rich nobody in the background of English nobility. Who knows, he could have probably been scheming for the kingship itself. It's said that Edric marched into Canute's royal hall, fuming, erupting in a tirade, I can imagine by this point, Canute becoming a more mature ruler every day, might have just listened. Edric essentially felt like he deserved to be at the, the highest point of English nobility. The amount of work, of personal risk, he had assumed to see that Canute defeated Ethelred and then Edmund was second to none, and he deserved more. Well, there must have been an awkward silence at the end of Edric's rant. I can see Canute rising slowly with a, with a faint smile as if he knew this moment would come the second he appointed that ally to oversee Mercia. His intention must have been to, in the end, rid England of this treacherous creature. And this, having had such, having had such a successful year consolidating and solidifying his rule, was the last thing on his list for 1017. Just in time, too. I mean, this was Christmas Day. Canute probably walked toward Edric calmly, and when he was a breath away from his, Edric's face, finally... He spoke. If Edric wanted greatness, if he wanted to achieve the highest of highs in English society, if he wanted rewarded and compensated for the work he put in overthrowing the House of Wessex, well, then Canute shall grant him all. This was, as John of Worcester would later recount, quote, a man indeed of low origin but his smooth tongue gained him wealth and high rank, and, gifted with a subtle genius and persuasive eloquence, 
he surpassed all his contemporaries in malice and perfidy, as well as in pride and cruelty. End quote. In addition, chronicler William of Malmesbury would describe him as, quote, the refuse of mankind, the reproach of the English, an abandoned glutton, a cunning miscreant, who had become opulent not by nobility, but by specious language and impudence, end quote. It was no secret that Edric had lured in and killed Morcar and Sigfrith years earlier. Everyone knew of Edric passing from Ethelred to Swain, and then from Edmund to Knut. And finally, it's said that in this very meeting on Christmas Day of 1017, Edric admitted to Knut his involvement in the death of Edmund. Edric supposedly ordered his own son to find his way into the, well, the bottom of the loo and wait on King Edmund of Wessex to sit. And it was in that moment that Edric's own son struck Edmund from below with a sword multiple times until the king was dead. John of Worcester also records Canute saying, ordering, really, Edric to be killed within the palace walls, and then quietly and unceremoniously tossed over the walls to be left without a burial. Well, I mean, this is kind of fitting for sure for such a villain as Edric Streona, but it's it's a little anticlimactic, right? I mean, much like Edmund dying of a festering battle wound from Ashenden over a month later, I mean, just anticlimactic. See, late medieval writers really hated this guy, Edric, so they decided to have some fun with his death, but by far the most popular of these accounts mirrors the outrageousness of Edmund's death on the loo. Canute, according to Hen- Henry Huntingdon, writing almost a century later, was, was recorded as telling Edric, quote, As a reward for your great service, I shall make you higher than all the English nobles. Then Canute had him beheaded, and his head to be mounted on a stake on London's highest tower. End quote. <laughs> the dark humor of medieval writers really doesn't get the play it deserves sometimes. Thank you all for downloading and listening. I want to offer an apology for missing last week. As a public school teacher here in the United States, I've, I've made the sudden jump to virtual teaching. And it's, it's been overwhelming, you know, by the amount of work that goes into to going from a classroom to an online experience, making this as a rewarding of an experience for my students as I possibly can. And as you can imagine, besides my own family, my students are my main priority. This work will, of course, level off, and I'll be able to get back on schedule with the podcast, but just know that I'm not going anywhere. I hope to be here as much as I possibly can, so please keep checking back each Monday for a new episode, because we've only begun to scratch the surface of our medieval story. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. And don't forget to tag us, too, if you share us on Twitter, at Podcast. Or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I try to update these pages weekly, and I I would love to hear from you, actually. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, which I check almost daily. It's at the end of 1017 when we begin to see Canute really establish himself 
and we start to get the whispers of him becoming truly great. Over the next couple years, he will still have major events to navigate. But as I said before, Canute was a dreamer. And as we've seen during this episode, he was maturing rapidly as a foreign king. On the next episode, we'll see how Canute not only navigates his way to the top of the Danish throne, but how he also expands his Anglo-Danish kingdom into a much more expansive presence encompassing most of the North Sea. I can't wait to tell you about it.